Hello, this is Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. So, what is a virus? A virus, like the coronavirus, is a snip of DNA, or RNA in the case of retroviruses. Some viruses operate by attaching themselves to the cell membrane and then penetrate all the way to the nucleus. The virus then reprograms the target cell to make virions, essentially replicas of the virus. In the normal course of events, the virions overwhelm and rupture the host cell. The liberated virions then go from cell to cell, organism to organism, replicating the same process. This is how nature operates at the viral level and how viruses make us sick. So is a virus alive? Is it like a bacteria or a germ? Or is it something different? You know, there's a variety of opinions. It's kind of a controversy. Some scientists think that viruses are basically just a chemistry set, that they don't reproduce like living creatures. You see, coming up with what it means to be living, living beings, beings consume, they process, they expend energy, and they can reproduce. A virus can't reproduce on its own. It doesn't mate with other viruses. It doesn't do the process of cell division known as mitosis, where amoebas, for instance, can just split and make replicas of themselves. They can reproduce themselves. They are, in everyone's estimation, living. There's a fascinating article in Scientific American uh, by Dr. Louis P. Villarreal, and he argues that there is a spectrum between what is certainly alive and what is not. And that means it's there's kind of a blurred distinction between what is living and what is inert. Viruses challenge the idea that non-living matter, which is, you know, I guess most of the cosmos, is inert and static. In fact, inertness is an illusion. At the subatomic level, all matter is full of motion and energy. Our bodies are not just chemical reactions. We have a soul. I'll talk about that some more. There's more to us, but Chemical reactions do certainly occur, occur inside the human body. We're complicated, and we exist in a very complicated, vibrant, pulsing, living reality. St. Paul gets that right in his letter to the Romans. St. Paul's letter to the Romans and the fate of this world. So the second reading today was from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's St. Paul's most complete statement about Christ, salvation, and creation. You know, most of St. Paul's letters, he writes to churches that he's founded, churches he's preached to, and he's doing pastoral ministry, correcting some problems, getting things back on track. But that's not what the letter to the Romans is. The letter to the Romans is St. Paul's introduction of himself to the people of Rome. And he says why. He plans to go to Spain to spread the gospel. And he's hoping that the Romans will help fund his missionary trip to Spain because he sees himself as taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And for the Roman 
people uh, like St. Paul, who was a Roman citizen. The end of the earth is the western coast of Spain. So in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul talks about the relationship between the salvation of humanity and the fate of all creation, not just human beings, but the whole created world. The New Testament is concerned with more than just the salvation of human beings. The book of Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth to be recreated from this world. In Romans 8, our reading today, St. Paul describes what is going to happen to creation at the end of time. First, you need to know that Paul was formed as a Pharisee by the ancient Jewish distinction between two spheres of reality, known as old creation and the new creation. In Hebrew rabbinic language, this age, which is ha-olam haseh, and the age to come, which in Hebrew is ha-olam haba, in, it is the difference between this present world and a world that will follow it. In some ancient Jewish writings, there was this sequential relationship between the world that we live in and this world that the Jewish people believe was coming. You see, we live in the present age, and that's why St. Paul says that the glory to be revealed refers not to this world, but to the new creation, where we are reunited with our bodies in the world to come. For St. Paul, the present world is like a pregnant woman struggling to give birth to the new world. The world he describes is not an inanimate collection of atoms and molecules. Don't get me wrong, St. Paul's not a pantheist. But the present world is pregnant with meaning, purpose, and destiny. The pagan philosopher Aristotle would say that there is a final cause, a telos, to the existing world. There is a point to which this world is aiming. Even the pagans like St. Aristotle thought that. St. Augustine, in his uh, book, The City of God, uh, says that there is this upward momentum to all of creation. Creation has a driving point. It's not just us, but all of creation has this end point that uh, God is directing it toward. St. Paul taught that all of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The world is not alive in the sense that a human being is alive. We're very unique, and I'll talk about that more. But still, there is more to creation than merely inert matter. At the end of the present age, this universe will share in the resurrection of the righteous on the last day. The cosmos itself is actually going to participate in the resurrection of all of humanity. Christians ought not to think of salvation only in anthropocentric terms, that is, in just human terms, that's just a human reality. God is saving the entirety of creation. According to St. Paul, all of the universe will share in the resurrection of the dead. So that movie, if you remember, All Dogs Go to Heaven, turns out that it's probably true. Salvation is not just something for humanity. Salvation is something that involves the whole universe, the whole cosmos. And so he's saying, St. Paul, that creation itself is going to be set free because creation itself is subject to the bondage of death and decay. St. Paul's not preaching Mother Earth or Gaia, who was Mother Earth in Greek mythic terms, but he does depict creation in feminine terms. And so here's the reading from today. 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are as nothing compared with the glory to be revealed for us. For creation awaits with eager expectation the revelation of the children of God. For creation was made subject to futility, not of its own accord, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from slavery to corruption and share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that all creation is groaning in labor pains, even until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan within ourselves as we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You see, the image for the final judgment in the new creation is a woman giving birth. The beauty of our world, our parents, families, the trees, the oceans, and even the viruses are subject to decay. The mountains will wear down and the sun will burn through all of its fuel. This world is slowly falling day by day into death. Every beautiful forest is full of life and death and something in between. The waters of the sea, beautiful as they are, brim with the corpses of whales, fish, and shipwrecks. And the book of Revelation describes the final judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and there were open books, and one of them was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their deeds as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, and each one was judged according to his deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's Book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 12 to 14. And the end of the book of Revelation describes this same new world that St. Paul is talking about. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling is with the human race. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will always be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death or mourning, wailing or pain, for the old order has passed away. The one who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. You see, God will restore creation into a new creation. In Romans 8, Paul compares this world to a pregnant woman because a pregnant woman brings forth new life, as does this cosmos. So in the new world, will viruses be there? Will the rules of chemistry be the same? Will it be different? Maybe, who knows? Well, we already know there's lots of controversies about viruses. Are they chemistry sets or are they something living? Kind of depends who you talk to. So what is the human place in all of this creation? How did the Bible look at us? If you listen to uh, the forces that are kind of anti-Christian in the last couple of years, they will always tell you that under Christianity, they saw themselves as the center of creation. You know, it's as things that are half-truths, um, it's mostly untruth. If you think about it instead, 
is that human beings are composite creatures. Somehow they partake of a kind of nature that's greater than themselves, and they take up care of a part of a nature that is something less than themselves, or we could say at least different. So it's not center in the middle, like most important. What it really is, is we're hybrids. And, and here's how the medievals thought about it. You see, how we think about where human beings fit in the world is really central to understanding human beings as a connected part of the world. Uh, we're not a virus in the world. Uh, viruses, human beings, animals, angels, we all belong to the created world. So maybe that's the gift of the present pandemic, that it connects us not just to the people of Wuhan, China, but we also see our interaction with all these other forms of existence, living and not living, at least by our terms. You see, before the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, make that the 18th century, Christianity offered a more complete view of creation than I think is offered by the secular world. In the medieval view, man was not the center or dominant figure in creation. Life extended above us to the angels who were immaterial and below us to the animals that were very material. We were unaware of the controversy at that time surrounding the nature of the virus, but I think the medievals would have been okay with that and would have fit it right into their worldview. I know many of you probably heard of C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters. But as a Christian apologist, that was like a hobby, a sidelight for him. He made his living as a medievalist at Oxford. And the last book he put together before he died in the mid to early 60s was a book called The Discarded Image. And it was all about the medieval image of the human person and how the medievals looked at the world. Professor Lewis was a medievalist who wanted to remind us of the treasures of the past. He wrote in his book, The Discarded Image, man is a rational animal and therefore a composite being, partly akin to the angels who are rational, but on at least the later scholastic view, not animal, and partly akin to the beasts, which are animal, but not rational. This gives us one of the senses in which the human is the little world or microcosm. Every mode of being in the whole universe contributes to him. He is a cross-section of being, as Gregory the Great, early medieval time, 540 to 604 says, because man has existence, essay, in common with stones, life in common with trees, and understanding, discernere, with angels. Man is this unique being. As a composite soul of angelic animal and the vegetative world, and the angelic read the rational nature of human beings. This is what the human position in creation was. Lewis describes the nature of the animating souls in God's creation. And they're the vegetative, the animal, and rational souls. And you should know that the medievals got this through their reading of Aristotle, as it was introduced to the West through St. Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican. Here's what Lewis wrote in the discarded image. 
The powers of vegetable soul are nutrition, growth, and propagation. It alone is present in plants. The sensitive soul, which we find in animals, has these powers, but has sentience in addition. It thus includes and goes beyond vegetable soul, so that a beast can be said to have two levels of soul, sensitive and vegetable, or is double-souled, or even, though misleadingly, two souls. Well, you see, the sensitive has as part of its properties the vegetative in, in Aristotle's look. Plants don't really think, they don't really feel, they just consume and propagate. Animals consume and propagate, but they do have a certain sentience, the ability to think things out, but something radically different than the human rational soul. And this is the other thing about um, these composite beings and, and all of creation of the medieval idea. How did it look at death? Uh, was it merely a redistribution of matter or something more going on? And so here's what Lewis said. Death is not the soul's nature. It's not the soul's nature to leave the body. Rather, the body, disnatured by the fall, deserts the soul because it's the rational part of uh, the human uh, composite being that is survives death. And that's why we need new bodies. God can't give us a new soul. That's why careless soul is so important. God will give us new bodies. You know, some medievals argue that the human person was three-souled, vegetative, uh, animal, and rational. But, you know, they're just arguments. Above us in the fullness of creation are the angels who participate only in the rational world as they have no bodies. So they have no vegetative soul, they have no animal soul. Human beings in the biblical view were not the center of creation in the sense that creation was all about us. Instead, human beings are somewhere in the middle of all that has been made and created by our creator. And he made us unique because of our composite form of life. You know, viruses are loved by God, although they are neither, apparently, vegetable, animal, or rational. But we live in the same world with them, in this continuum of existence. And so for the medievals, the virus that would have been no concern whether it is living or dead, because they saw the all of creation as in some sense um, vibrant and pulsing but not alive in the same sense as vegetables, animals, and people are. But viruses, just like vegetables, animals, and people, the sun, the stars, um, everything in creation plays its part in God's creation and in the preparation for the world to come. Uh, that pregnant creation that's groaning and travailing, giving birth, uh, to this new city that is descending down from God. You know, the scientific view is a better mechanical view of the world. But you know, I say if you take a human being and you just dissect them, and those are always the famous stories about dissecting human beings, and the lungs over here, the heart's there, there's the brain, there's the kneecap. Do you really learn what a human being is like that? You, you learn how physically they work, the animal and the vegetable part. 
but something radically important is lost. And that's the problem of science. It's not a coherent view of the world. The medievals had a coherent view of the world. You see, what we gained in a technical understanding in modern science, we've lost in vision of what it means to be a human being. You know, Pope Francis in his encyclical Laudate Si wants to remind us of this role that we play in the world, how we're part of all things. Laudato Si is very uh, understanding. It brings forward in an important sense that medieval worldview when, Saint, uh, when Pope Francis said, Everything in the world is connected, from the well-being of the poor to the flourishing of the planet itself. Hey, a little virus connects us to Wuhan, China. I've never been to Wuhan, China. And it connects us to all points in between. Nature is not the dramatic background scenery for our own life drama, which is the only thing that matters. But all of nature, the chorus of the stars, the animals, the vegetables, the mountains, is like in a Greek play. It's the chorus that has a role in the play and reminds us of what it is and who God is because nature gives praise to God. We just play our part in this play. God is the director. He's also the writer. So don't mess with the director and the writer. Everything, even a virus, has a part to play in the story of creation. St. Paul reminds us that the patience of our mothers giving us birth has much to teach us in the time of pandemic. And that is, we ought to be patient with what God is doing in the world. This has been Oral Valley Catholic, and this has been Father John Arnold. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>